Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Bruce Torf with us. Bruce is a professor of educational psychology at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York. He has published numerous books and articles on topics in educational psychology, cognitive developmental psychology, and teacher education, including work on teachers' beliefs and attitudes, classroom use of critical thinking activities, and professional development for educators. His books include Understanding and Teaching the Intuitive Mind and Multiple Intelligences and Assessment. Torf is founder and director of the Doctoral Program in Learning and Teaching at Hofstra, where he was named Teacher of the Year in 2009. He earned a doctorate and two master's degrees at Harvard University, where he worked with Howard Gardner and served as a project director at Project Zero, Gardner's research organization. Torf also held a postdoctoral appointment at Yale University in collaboration with Robert J. Sternberg. He is active as a leader of professional development workshops for educators and is also a jazz pianist and songwriter. So welcome, Dr. Bruce Torf. How are you? Hello, and thanks for having me. Great. We're happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. Sure. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Sure am. Awesome. So Bruce, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Most of the leading I have done in my career has to do with programs at the university level, and in particular, a doctoral program here that I founded about 10 years ago, and I recently stepped down as a director, but mm-hmm. that had been quite an experience in starting with a blank piece of paper and a dream and ending up going through the state process and then recruiting students and ramping it all up over a long period. So um, here at Hofstra Here university. at Hofstra, and that involved, obviously, eliciting cooperation from large numbers of individuals across the campus and off campus. Uh, and so, yes, there was quite a bit of leading involved in that, if not in the traditional sense of educational leadership. Mm-hmm. And so your path to there, how did you pursue leadership? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I'm very passionate about the doctorate in education because we are in such need of well-done educational research to inform practice. Mm -hmm. Now, I am myself a former public school teacher and wish not ever to speak ill of them. A great deal of educational practice is predicated on the intuitions, the values, the beliefs of the practitioners, and that would include teachers and administrators alike. You will not hear me speak ill of that way to make decisions, but it would be good if that was abetted by well-conducted research that showed how things work when studied systematically. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes intuition leads us in this direction, and a systematic research project leads us in that one, and we need to know what path to be on. 
So I have been passionate about the research doctorate in education because I believe in the need for a research corpus to inform educational practice. This has not been the easiest road to hoe because a great many education doctorates are sort of cobbled together and are a little short in academic rigor and uh, they do not carry the same sort of heft that, say, a doctorate in psychology or physics might. Mm -hmm. And so I set out to create a doctoral program that was very strong in academic rigor, that involved research skills, both quantitative and qualitative, and a great deal of scholarly inquiry, somewhat less in politics. And so that's what we set out to do here, and we actually succeeded in doing it, although it it was a long and at times difficult road. So the path to leadership, I would advise anyone, is not uh, onward and upward every second, but involves getting back up when knocked down. Hmm. Cue the Frank Sinatra song. (laughs) So how would you describe your leadership style? I don't really believe in autocracy. I don't think you get a whole lot out of people by running roughshod over them. Mm -hmm. I don't think the top-down leadership is effective in a lot of situations. Now, just as a caveat before I continue with this line of thought, there's a reason why a 747 or a ship has one person whom is the captain and that person has final authority. But there's a lot of situations in educational leadership which are really not like that, that are better off when they're somewhat less centralized and when people's voices are heard and their uh, opinions consulted in a meaningful and sincere and genuine way, then uh, you're more likely to get the kind of change that you need to get in organizations. So a very strong autocratic type leader might look good at first blush, but they tend not Actually, to get... Actually, they don't the, look too good. They don't go to me. <laughs> no. um, in fact, indeed, one of my favorite stories to tell, I'll make it short, is a struggling school district decided that they were going to instill discipline and, and order in the school district by hiring a recently retired military general as their superintendent. The Needless to say, the superintendent soon found out what separates a uh, unioned up and tenured up teaching staff and administrative staff from a military organization in which you can literally order people around. Mm -hmm. The general made it about halfway through the school year before getting canned by the school board. Mm. Uh, There's a moral in that story, and I think that uh, it is that if you want an organization to have a shared vision and to move ahead with it in a way which is collaborative and shared, then there's going to have to be a little uh, play in who, who runs the show. So I'm not a big believer in autocratic leadership. I think the best leaders are the ones who know how to listen and know when to back off as well as back up. Well, speaking of that, what type of leader are you inspired by? Like, who would you follow? I think the most effective folks in working with me in my career have been the ones who took my ideas seriously, frankly, even when they weren't really all that good. They They give you a sense that you have something to contribute Mm -hmm. and that you should be listened to. And that personal validation keeps a person moving on the way toward accomplishing more things. So the best leaders, I think, are the ones who can listen through an idea that they may not favor and even at the end of the conversation may not favor it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they send the message to the other person, you're important, you're part of this team, we care about you right? We need you here. Anyone who has that spirit is likely to 
continue to contribute ideas and continue to take part, and good things are going to happen. And that's so true. That's someone who values what I bring to the table, and it's not just about them. Right. So, Bruce, are there any quotes about leadership that speak to you? I don't have a quote off the top of my head because I come to this leadership conversation from slightly far afield. But I, I, What do you I, mean by that? Well, I'm not trained in educational leadership. I've never served as a school administrator, although I was a public school teacher for a long time. Okay. And I have been a teacher of one kind or another for, oh gosh, an embarrassing 35-plus years. Um, I just keep saying 25, over yeah. 25, yeah. that's all I say. That's, so you stop counting at 25? <laughs> yes. Wish birthdays were like that. Um, so I lack a pithy quote to offer you right now. My uh, wife, who is a, who's trained in school administration, would probably have one. Right. Uh, but I would... any, any leadership. It doesn't have to be ed leadership. But mm. like, for instance, my favorite quote is, be the change you wish to see in the world yes. by Gandhi, which comes Well, to uh, that raises another quote. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's often said, it's easier to fight for your principles than to live up to them. Hmm. Right. And so uh, there's a lot of people in the world who are very militant about what they believe in and in some cases very active. It's harder, in fact, to lead by example and to have the things you would like to see happen taking place in your own office, your own classroom, your own school as well. So it's easier, in, in a sense, to fight than to provide that example. It's easier to just fight. You're right. Bruce, what's the best advice you've ever received? I recall back when I was a conservatory student, I, I'm a piano player, I let this very experienced woman know that I was thinking about working on a doctorate someday. For some reason, I've known I've needed an earned doctorate since I was like eight. Um, (laughs) And she looked kind of gravely at me, and she said, well, the key to a doctoral program is to not get discouraged. I hear that. Yes, and that certainly ended up being sage advice as I worked through mine, Perseverance, right? That's and the key word. The, and now that I'm on the other side of the desk, I have to create the kind of environment where other people can be perseverant. There's an awful lot of things in this world that have bumps in the road. If you're an educational administrator trying to roll out something new in a school, you know exactly what I mean. Because at no point do you get 100% staff buy-in and instant ramp-up, not in any school that I've ever visited, and I've been to quite a few. And so there's much to be said for expecting rainy days and being ready for them. And so I would advise anybody who was entering a leadership situation, or for that matter, undertaking a doctorate, Mm -hmm. to plan for success and expect moments when it seems elusive. Mm -hmm. And the result there is a willingness to be perseverant, to be resilient, and perhaps uh, courageously willing to walk away from ideas you thought were good but for one reason or another, are not going to fly. Now, sometimes they don't fly because they just weren't good ideas, and we were the last to find that out. In other cases, you have good ideas that won't go forward because of the political environment or the social environment or the educational environment we're in. There might be a faculty that doesn't want to go along. In the case of school administration, there might be a parent community that's not interested in this. An example I'll give is I know a school district around here that wanted to ramp up bilingual elementary education. Mm -hmm. They wanted everybody in the district 
taught in two languages, not just in one. This dual language, I believe they call it, right? Where some of the day is taught in English and some of the day is taught in another language, which in this case I believe was Spanish. Mm -hmm. There's evidence to show that individuals who are fluent in two languages have cognitive capacities to benefit from that effort. Mm -hmm. However, there was a huge parent community that really didn't want anything to do with it, and they were very vocal in their opposition. And needless to say, the program petered out after a very short period of time because parental support board fell to critically low levels. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it wasn't a good idea. That meant there wasn't an environment for it. And so the lesson is that we've got to pick our spots and we've got to move into what it is we can accomplish and we have to be willing to pull back our efforts when it's, they're obviously not going to be successful in this arena because they might be in another arena. Mm -hmm. So it takes a great deal of flexibility in my judgment and social skill, you know, reading the tea leaves in order to be able to make initiatives come to pass. And knowing when to say, okay, that one didn't work is kind of important. Stubbornness is often valuable, but there's times in educational leadership when it's not. In a situation like that, how important is it to have a mentor or a coach? I think it's essential, especially if one's new to something, even if one's not. But new teachers and new administrators are, by and large, left to their own devices much too much in our educational world. Teachers almost inevitably announce after they start in the classroom, why didn't they teach this to me when I was in teacher education school? Right? There's even a book entitled, Why Didn't They Tell Me This When I Was in College, or something to that effect. And I understand that. I was a new teacher once that was completely without a clue. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would like to make a case that that's a bit of a cheap shot. It was one when I said it, and it still is. There are many things in this world one does not learn through direct instruction. One learns more through practicing that has been guided by someone who knows what they're doing. No one reads a book about how to play the viola and comes out a violist. There are many things in life that are like that. <laughs> right. There are things that can be learned in so declarative a manner, but that's a limited universe. Mm -hmm. Many things need to be sheer practiced. In fact, when you go through a program in ed admin or in teacher education or quite a few other things, you're probably about 15% ready for the job at the moment that you started. The rest you're going to have to figure out yourself. Uh, you're going to make mistakes and learn from them. Hopefully, there'll be mentorship that will guide you to make fewer of those mistakes and to learn more from the ones that are made. But there's an awful lot in this world learned through the school of hard knocks. And anybody who expected it to be bliss right off the bat as a leader or as a teacher probably had the wrong idea going in. Mm -hmm. I believe mentorship is incredibly important. I still have various teachers' ideas rattling around in my head as I work to this day. But I do think that there's an element of being willing to figure this out for myself, to make a few mistakes and to learn from them, to make a better plan based on what I've learned. I, I think that's kind of essential to leadership development. Mm -hmm. One could not become a great leader, in my opinion, if one read the entire corpus in the Library of Congress on leadership it would be a terrific knowledge base. And then that 85% of figuring out how you really do this would still end up before you. Right. As it would if you wanted to play the viola or learn to ride a bike or any of a number of other activities in the world. Yeah. And most of our listeners are ed leaders. And oftentimes we don't have that access to a mentor or it's not provided to us. But I want to say that 
you know, we can access it as leaders. We can choose that. We can invest in that as well. It doesn't have to be that the district or the office supplies that to us. That's a great need that I think we need to step into. So I agree. In case of school leaders, now you know more about this than I do, but I don't know of a lot of great mentorship that new school leaders get. I think they get thrown to the dogs largely. Uh, they become APs at the beginning of their careers. An AP is like a dirty laundry hamper in which every soiled garment in the school is tossed and they learn the hard way how things go through the school and then they work their way up the ranks. I don't know that that is supported through mentorship very much at all. On the teacher side, New York State technically requires all new teachers to be assigned a mentor, but I do a lot of professional development in schools, and I can assure you that many, many of those programs are minimal to negligible, leaving people in about the same position I was in back in 1980, which was, here's your classroom, kid, go to it, and then you hear the door slam behind you, know, right? And, and that um, is a sobering moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be good if we did better than that. Can the school districts do it? Probably not. They're already overloaded. Administration in particular, as you probably know, administrative staffs are at their lowest level for years because during the recession everybody wanted school administration lines cut. And at the same time, the jobs expected of administrators were increased. APPR and what have you increased the paperwork shuffle that administrators had to do, and it became, a, frankly, a very unattractive job for a while there. Yeah. yeah. I remember saying, oh, heck no. Sure. Administration? Oh, no. Absolutely. And it's still, I mean, yeah. I still hear that of teachers. Oh, I have no doubt. I don't have any statistics for you right now, but I would guess that applications from teachers to ed admin programs, master's, CAS doctorate, are probably at very low levels. There was a time when being the person who drove up in the Lexus and ran the school looked like a really good move forward and then when it began to look like a APPR fueled nightmare a lot of people began looking at that and saying no thanks Mm. so it's not clear to me that job is viewed as attractive as it used to be and without a doubt we were talking about mentorship I don't think the education and learning to do it is sufficiently supported at all let me add one thing about that while we're ranting and that is uh, my wife went through a school admin program so I've sort of lived this and she had 600 hours of internship that she had to participate in in order to earn the license and 600 is a heck of a lot of hours but very very little of it was devoted to the sorts of activities that really help you learn school administration mostly those 600 hours were devoted to projects the school administrators wanted to get done on the cheap Some of the experiences my wife had were very, very beneficial for her. She was basically the AP of an elementary school for a semester, and she learned a lot. That was Mm -hmm. terrific. Mm -hmm. It was the school of hard knocks, but she learned a lot. The opposite, unfortunately, happened more often, Mm -hmm. which was that she was given administrative tasks to disappear into a windowless office to complete that was mostly for the benefit of the school staff and not for the benefit of the mentee. That's a little exploitive. Yeah, it happens more often than not, so yeah, it, unfortunately. It, it does, and I think yeah. it to be a problem worth paying attention to. Yeah. So, Bruce, you put a program together, and I imagine that you had to have a good team to do that. Indeed. So what does it mean to have a good team, and how would you build or sustain one? Well, I would start by 
saying you have to choose carefully whom you recruit because there are some folks who will share the vision, who will participate in the process, and can be counted on to deliver on deadline. They're there when you need them. Ramping up a doctoral program from a blank piece of paper was a colossal task. Imagine. Um, yeah, that, well, there's the whole issue of devising the program to get it through the school administration here, but then also through the state of New York mm -hmm. to get it started. And so you, you're going through three levels there, the faculty, and then the administration, and then the state. Not an easy job. Uh, well, it was three years of administrivia, basically. Oh, wow. um, so my first thought would be to be careful who you pick because some folks are going to leave you without the job done on deadline day, and other people are not. But once you've got the right people in place, then it comes down again to flexible and supportive leadership, mm -hmm. right? You can't be uh, micromanaging and second-guessing a lot of things that people do. You have to have some faith that they're going to be good at what they do and how they conceive of it is going to work. And barring egregious problems, trying to make what they're contributing work within the larger scheme. So trust is a big thing. I think so. Uh, it doesn't have to be blind trust, mm -hmm. right? There's, this is kind of collaborative trust. Mm -hmm. uh, but people, when they sense you don't value how they've done things, begin to detach from the project, to step back, as it were, lean out that doesn't help build anything. So I think it starts with the right recruiting and it continues with the right kind of affirming management, even when that can be kind of difficult for the person trying to lead the charge. Okay, let's kind of shift a little bit. Can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Well, I recall back when I was a doctoral student that I had this idea for a dissertation. I'll spare you the details. Let's just say it hit a variety of snags. And while I probably could have circumvented them, it caused me to want to rethink the direction of the research I was doing and to essentially decamp to a different area. Not entirely dissimilar, but dissimilar enough. That was kind of embittering. As I think about that summer that I went to the Red Sox game almost every night so as to avoid my work, I used to walk all the way from Harvard Square to Fenway Park. And if anybody in your listenership knows Boston, you probably know that's a hell of a long way to walk both ways. Um, when I look back at that now, I'm thinking that there was kind of no reason to just go to the Red Sox game every night for two months or something. I could have easily have dropped that idea and moved on to another. I think a lot of this has to do with how much emotional impact it has on you. Hmm. When you first start out as a scholar, to give you another example of this, every time you get a rejection notice for something you've written, it's absolutely lay you out on the floor devastating. Devastating. Yeah, right. It's bone crunching, right? But one begins to, first of all, see people who do not experience that. I postdoc at Yale University with an unbelievably prolific human being, Robert Sternberg, mm -hmm. right, who probably has the largest CV in the history of the world. And when I tell you this guy's hundreds and hundreds of publications, I'm not exaggerating. I don't know that there's a person on earth who's published more papers. Anyway, he would get a rejection note, and he wouldn't even look up. You know, he would just say, okay, let's send it off to the next journal. And, and there was no visible emotion on his face, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, so that's what happens when you've done a lot of this. Uh, and then the second part of that is, you know, you, you begin to have enough rejection notices that they start to affect you emotionally less. And so you, you get desensitized? A little bit, or tougher, perhaps, however you want to call okay. it. And, and you get a rejection slip and you say, okay, fine, right? What's the next journal? 
right? And it affects you less as you move it on. And I don't think I've ever written a paper that didn't end up published. There's 70 or 80 of them at this point, probably. I've lost so long since lost count. So all of your count. papers from then on have been yes? Oh, no. There have been some that have been dinged, and I've had to move on to the next uh, venue. The same way st- happened with Sternberg, mm-hmm. who was very well-known and a very good writer and thinker. It happens to everybody. Sometimes the papers we write don't fit the journal we sent them to very well. Right. And then in other cases, they're just not quite as good as they could have been, and then you look for another venue for that work. Nobody's work's great all the time. Mm-hmm. And so there's a certain um, get-the-emotion-out-of-this element that I'm extolling right now. At first, you overreact to having your thesis idea run aground or your paper get dinged, right? I think that emotional reaction bears a little scrutiny. I look back and see some wastes of time and energy uh, that could have been prevented. Any leader listening to our podcast today might be well advised to think about how they can be passionate about this without having that sort of cloud them emotionally. Right, because the setbacks do not need to plow you over. They're part of the process, and if they don't phase you, like Bob Sternberg was not phased by rejection slips, mm-hmm. that just means you steam on and get more done a lot faster. No need to go to the Red Sox game every night. <laughs> or in this case, maybe the Mets or the Yankees. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, even longer walk. Even longer. Yeah. Um, when you talk about getting stuck in your emotions, I think that's when a coach is really an important person to tap into because you don't waste the time you don't waste that energy you go to someone who sees your blind spot because we all have them and is able to kind of walk you through that absolutely I I recall one experience in graduate school where I was overreacting to something I can't even remember what it was Uh, but the dude I was working with at the time said turn sideways and let that blow by (laughs) And obviously, this is 25 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday, right? Because it's kind of a watershed moment, right? That's what you do when you're a leader and something snagging just happened. Turn sideways and let it blow by. Mm -hmm. If it affects you emotionally, it becomes a bigger problem for you and your organization. Mm -hmm. If it affects you less, it becomes a smaller problem for you and your organization. Mm -hmm. This is hard to do. It's easy to sit here with a microphone in front of you and say this, but it's definitely the good fight. We should all attempt to be like Bob Sternberg getting a rejection slip. I didn't even sense that he cared. Right, right. He moved forward. He pressed on. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you? In the early days of the doctoral program I founded, which was a multi-headed leadership challenge with students, with faculty, with, with the administration, we had to figure out how we were going to establish a beachhead for rigorously done scientific quantitative type research. We were trying to create an education doctorate that really provided evidence you could generalize from. If you show me a, a well-done study with three people in it, I'll say, wow, that's really interesting, but how do I know the many are represented by the few there? If you show me the same study done with 300 people, now I'm beginning to feel more confident that whatever's found here will generalize to a larger population in which I'm interested. So that was our goal. And early on in the process, we wanted to do this, but had comparatively little set up to accomplish it. 
And so early on, we were all busting our tails, trying to stay, as they say in the teaching business, one step ahead of the kids as we were trying to develop this. I had to learn huge amounts about research design and statistics that I didn't already know. And it was very beneficial for me personally, but more importantly, it put the program on the map. Uh, We had no advertising budget or anything else, so we had to work this up through word of mouth, through the ranks. And we've ended up with a a very strong program with a large applicant pool. And that's a success, but it was no overnight success. For us to have the kind of reputation for really well-done research, that took some doing. As it turned out, our very first graduate won a dissertation award, which was kind of shocking because in all the years of this college, only one person here had ever won it from this college ever before since doctorates started to be issued here in 1964. And so uh, that was a big deal, and it was our very first student, so that was a magnificent moment. Yes, it Um, was. But it was still just kind of one of the stepping stones to try to establish this reputation and the procedures for the kind of hard-hitting research that we had in mind. And needless to say, we have not uh, reached those high heights uh, often since. You know, we we, um, have to keep working at our craft. So creating that is amazing, and sustaining that is another challenge. Yes, especially when all the procedures are in place and nothing's new anymore, and this isn't quite the thrill it once was. We just have to face that sort of up and then down trajectory. Mm -hmm. You cannot be in newlywed bliss for longer than... I don't know how long. Would you say three years, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then a new job is new and exciting for a while, and then it's not new, and then it's not exciting. Uh, a new house is new and exciting, and then it's not new, and then it's not exciting. And, and in fact, maintaining a house after you've had it for 20 years is a bit of a pain in the patootie. Um, yeah, Bruce, that's why yeah. I think I have an addiction to learning, but also to creating. And I've come across several people like that. At first, I was like, what's wrong with me? Yes. (laughs) Although there's a caution there I would like to launch. And that is, if a person has those sorts of impulses, which I admire, they do run a risk, which is that new projects are launched before the old ones are brought to fruition. (laughs) I worked at a research organization once. That's why a good team is important. Absolutely. I worked at a research organization once, really brainy place, full of incredibly accomplished people I was delighted to be around as the dumbest guy in the room. But this organization repeatedly would write a grant and get the next big project started before the last one had really been finished. You know, we were supposed to write monographs and books, and we were supposed to publish all these articles of the research we'd done, you know, all the stuff we were supposed to do to finish the project with dignity and gusto. But meanwhile, everybody's just really so burned out on this old thing and so excited by the new one that we were, in a sense, distracted from what we needed to do and attracted toward what we wanted to do, which I'd like to point out is the exact problem faced by individuals with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. (laughs) Um, If you have ADHD, the ADHD is not about not being able to pay attention. It's about not being able to pay attention to non-preferred activities. Mm -hmm. Research shows that ADHD kids can pay attention to their video games for four hours without even moving. Don't tell me they can't pay attention. Right. They're just hard to divert to a non-preferred activity. Right. And that's kind of what happened at the end of these research projects. So they have a metaphor in hockey. And I don't much play hockey or watch it, but it is a useful metaphor. Finish your checks. 
right? If you're going to check somebody off the puck, check them all the way off the puck before you stop checking. Well, we, we kind of didn't do that at this research organization to which I'm alluding. And I would advise anybody to think seriously about organizing really firm criteria for completion. Completion's important. Yep. And when we've done these four things, for example, then we're going to move on to the next project. But until we have done those four things, it is basically indulgent mm-hmm. and ADHD-ish. <laughs> to, but, you know, yeah. there are times when you have a project and you see it's not working out the way you expected and you can shift. Yes. To me, that's why it's important to have a good team. Yep. Because we're able to see from different angles and be flexible and creative and mid-course corrections are absolutely essential in almost everything a battle plan never survives the first shot research there's so many quotes in here you see (laughs) a a research project is a think on your feet affair i'll spare you statistical mumbo jumbo here but when you set out to see if this group differs from that group on something you're doing you almost always find yourself doing something else along the way that you hadn't foreseen and couldn't foresee unless you had a crystal ball. So there's a lot of think on your feet that goes there. I think of that as people are fairly good at that, pound for pound. I think they have more trouble finishing their checks. This organization full of really high-level PhDs that I'm referring to had a hard time finishing a project, Mm -hmm. and we frankly should have done better. Mm -hmm. Now, a thing like a doctorate you have to finish in order to Right. <laughs> finish the degree. So that that's kind of like a built-in completion right, thing. Right. But a lot of school leadership situations are kind of not like that. Yeah. There's no firm criteria for completion until you establish them mm-hmm. and perhaps write them down and maybe put them on the wall so that if you feel like drifting off into something that looks new and exciting and alluring, then maybe you'll say, okay, well, maybe later, but not right now. That's great advice. School people in particular are sensitive to being overloaded. I know teachers by the thousands. And uh, in the last 10 years, education reform ideas have come at them at a faster pace than it is safe to implement them. And that has caused angst and cursory implementation and tacit resistance and all kinds of things that could have been avoided had people been a little bit more patient quintessential example of that is rolling out the Common Core and APPR simultaneously, <laughs> which somebody should write a book about because it is I'm, I'm it, sure somebody, the I'm stupidest. I'm sure it's been written or yeah. close to publication. Yeah. yeah, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Whenever you roll out something as enormous as the Common Core, you know, in the short term it depresses performance, right, because people are destabilized. It's the U-shaped curve of learning. Right? You, people are doing something, and then you throw a monkey wrench in it. They do worse at it for a while, and then they finally catch back up. So right at the moment where they're at the low part of the U, you stick them with a test score-based teacher evaluation. I don't know that Kafka could have made that up. Vonnegut. Uh, we've survived that era. Now APPR has no teeth, and the Common Core is disappearing as we speak, proving that um, in education, it's like the weather you wait if you don't like it, you just wait for it to change. Right, right. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I would say that don't take that working climate or culture as a fait accompli and regard it as a project for trying to improve that climate. A lot of the time that climate was inherited. It was created by something right. that came before you. Maybe somebody did a bull in a china shop job 
or more frequently, leadership was so weak that the school was kind of renegade. You know, I've been in this business a long time. When I walk into a school, I can be 30 feet down the hall, and I can tell you the teachers here are renegade, mm -hmm. right? And they're not really led. They're independent. So if someone inherits a situation where they're either ticked off from ham-handed initiatives or renegade from the lack of initiatives, that becomes a situation to make relationships, make teams, have good experiences together, and try to work for kind of interpersonal change before you work for educational change. Now, there will be people who will not play ball when you try to do that, but you ignore that and move on. So you're talking about connecting with others That's and right. building relationships. That's right. Focus on that. I, I might even be tempted to play for a win every once in a while. You know, if there's something that a group of individuals, teachers, say, would really like to see happen, and maybe it isn't your first choice, but you do it anyway because you sort of need to get them onto your team, mm -hmm. right? And they score their win, and then they begin to look at you less as an impediment and more of a team member. And then when you show up with your idea a little bit later, the one you really like, then you might have their attention in a different way. And how important is that where everyone has tenure? Right, Because of the way it's shaken out with the recession 10 years ago and with APPR and everything, vast numbers of teachers that would have retired didn't. And the percentage of teachers in New York State that is tenured right now is at an all-time high. Right, So you've got a tenured-up, unioned-up bunch, and if you want to work with them, it's going to be the relationships that does it. And right. that is a long, tough battle worth every second. I, I believe so, too. I, I believe so, too. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Well, I think that it's a little bit different if you're a scholar or if you take a scholarly approach to something, because a scholarly area has a vanguard of research that's going on, journals you should read, talks you should go to, and stuff like that. Being a leader is not strictly a scholarly thing like that. It is a little more hands-on. There's a job to do, um, and that is to run an organization. Uh, thank God somebody's doing it. Obviously, there's a rich and vibrant scholarship in how to do it, but there's a job to do. This is not theoretical physics. This is applied physics. And mm -hmm. so people will be needing to, on a practical basis, get a job done. And that's the thing to facilitate. It's an incredibly important job because it involves people's lives. Right. Children. And the future. We're leading the future generations. Yeah. You know, one of the th reasons I'm doing this is because there's such a need for mm -hmm. us to continue to master leadership. But in schools as well, teaching and I guess facilitating an opportunity where you lead well and learn to lead yourself well sure. and teaching this to our students. A question is, what do you need from me to help you do this? Mm -hmm. Then you're going to get their perspective on what support, resources, whatever they're going to need. Now, some of what you're going to hear is not going to be implementable. Well, I need teachers that don't resist me, you know, right. I mean, or I mean, or I need parents that are on board. I mean, some of this is not going to be feasible, but some of it is. And a really important question is, here's what we're trying to accomplish. What could I do for you that would help us do this? What do you need in order to accomplish this? Sometimes I don't even know. 
It's amazing. I, I love that question, though. Blank look you get sometimes when you ask that. But if you tell them, think about that for a while and get back to me, they almost never fail to do so because they don't get asked that question a lot. And they finally think it through. And that's when they formulate a response that represents who they really are. Now, sometimes that's going to be just flat resistance. Well, I need this whole goddamn Common Core thing to go away. All right, fine. You know, if they're going to put up a roadblock, they're going to put up a roadblock. But sometimes they are taken aback by the question and then come back at you with, well, if I'm really going to ramp this common core curriculum up, here's the sort of things I need that would help me. And then they list off some stuff. I need to look at some sample lessons, right? I need a textbook, which is key to the common core or, or whatever it is they think they need. I love that question. And I think it's a question that a lot of leaders need to start asking. Can I be blunt? Yes. A lot of administrators that I've worked with think they already know Right. And shouldn't ask for fear of ceding power in what's really needed here. And that, in my judgment, is a mistake. It's a... Right? You may think you already know, but the person in front of you might have a different idea, and maybe you better be listening to that. Mm-hmm. Again, may I be blunt? Of course you can. (laughs) I have school administrators galore in my doctoral program, right, because a lot of them got their master's or CAS in ed ed min and really don't want to keep studying it for their doctorate. They want to go back to their teaching and learning heart Mm -hmm. for their doctorate. And so we've got plenty of school administrators in the program, and they are the hardest to get off the high horse of all the students who come our way. They're supposed to have answers. They're supposed to be authorities. They're supposed to have intuitions that run the school. And they're used to this sort of authority kind of figure. And so if I ask them to write a literature review that just reports what the literature says and which leaves their opinion out of it, they struggle considerably because they're used to being in a sort of an authority role. They think they know or they think they're supposed to know. Do you find that they have a hard time being wrong? Yes, I suppose that's true. I think it's less ego defense. I think it's more about them just feeling that their job requires them to be authoritative, mm-hmm. which it kind of does. But if you ask well, them, we've created that. I suppose we have. But yeah. if you ask them to write a literature review where you don't actually express an opinion of your own, you just synthesize these sixteen right. research articles. They have a hard time, right? You know, their opinions are coming into every other paragraph in a way that wasn't really part of the assignment. This is definitely a sort of byproduct of either being educated or experienced or both in administration, in leadership. Don't tell what we need to do this project. Ask what we need to do this project, and something else will happen. But that doesn't come easily to school administrators by virtue of their jobs. Right. So, Bruce, if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Well, uh, small and large... Although, I don't know, maybe people would not regard the first one as small, and I will try to avoid this one turning into a rant. I have two children. They're both in high school. One, today was her last day of high school, and the other one's going to start 10th grade in the fall. And they have been subjected to vast amounts of information, especially in mathematics, the utility of which has never been clear. We, We obsess on math and we make everybody learn huge amounts of math. And the number one reason for failure to graduate in the state is the integrated algebra region. And virtually everybody you run into at the grocery store doesn't use any of that math beyond the simplest algebra and a little arithmetic. So I, I believe that we at some point need to come to our senses about the extent to which people need huge amounts of math. And then conversely, there's a serious problem with people not knowing any history or any civics. Right, We're forcing 
vast amounts of mathematics down the throats of people who will never do it. And meanwhile, they have no idea how the social and political and educational and economic world around them actually works. Right? So we short shrift really important humanities, especially in civics and history, not just our history, but the world's history. So the stupidest things happen over and over and over because we're so busy teaching mathematics that we're not paying attention to the stuff that would probably actually help us learn. For those of us who grew up during Vietnam, the Iraq War was astonishingly stupid. It was mind-bogglingly ill-advised. Well, not just for you guys. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we, we'd already seen this uh, movie, and we know how it ends. Right. It ended exactly as we expected. <laughs> that is sad. Okay. Now, the larger thing is students, by virtue of their being human beings, forget almost everything that comes into their sensorium, are going to forget almost all the trivia we give them, right? The earth, for example, is divided up into all these sections. You have your crust and your mantle, and now there's these things called discontinuities and stuff. My kids had to literally commit to memory the names of these things. And, of course, you know, within a, a week of the exam, they don't remember it anymore. And huge amounts of instructional time went to this sheer, brute memorizing and forgetting experience. What a waste. Wait, now you can just say, Alexa, what was this? Yeah, exactly. Or Google? Right, right. What yeah. is this? Exactly. That's right. So, for my money, I would rather have my children mm -hmm. come through their schooling with critical thinking skills for negotiating the world around them rather than have so much time spent on memorizing things so they can be regurgitated on tests to give us the appearance of educational success. But what we're really doing is showing how much we can jam into memory and then promptly forget. I, I don't think either of my children can tell you what the parts of the earth are at this point, and I don't know that they're remiss for that. They would definitely be remiss if they didn't know how to evaluate a car dealer's pitch or interpret a bizarre letter from the IRS or make an argument to somebody about something that you need to accomplish, right? You know, the skills of argument, the skills of thinking would do so much more for kids than the vast amount of memorizing we do. And it's not just in math that we waste our time, but we do waste a lot of time in math, in my judgment. Yeah. I'm not saying people should not be taught any math, by the right. way. Algebra and arithmetic, et cetera, are essential things. Uh, well, but you know, I mean, we, what you're saying we do really, more than is necessary. What you're saying really speaks to me because my son loves social studies, or at least used to. And then he's bombarded with math, which he doesn't love sure. so much. My own uh, student's research shows how social studies is disappearing in elementary schools because it's no longer tested, right? And so folks like your son are unfortunately becoming more common. We're going to have people out there who don't understand the three branches of government, but who can, in fact, do geometry. And what can you say to that except for what's wrong with this picture? Right. If there are professions that require advanced skills, Make sure the kids get them. I'm a quantitative researcher. I need to know statistics. I can't imagine that my friend who's a drummer needs to know statistics to get by, and that's the way it is. No one taught him statistics. He didn't need them. Right. So all we're doing is moving the line of what's essential knowledge a little bit to the left, right, so that we're going to do a smaller number of things well rather than a larger number of things cursorily. If we reorganized our educational system around 
social participation and history and civics and citizenship. People knew what was going on around them and could participate in it. That would be a wiser expenditure of time than trying to figure out Euler's theorem. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Now, Bruce, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, you know, you're talking to a real psychology poindexter here, so uh, take that with a grain of salt as you... Um, well, considering yeah, it's yeah. Mastering Leadership and yeah. that lane... Yes. And I know you read a lot. Uh, there's um, uh, a very profound insight about human beings uh, in the work of a Nobel Prize winner and his deceased partner, Amos Tversky and Dan Kahneman. And the book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in my judgment, is the most important book in what could be called psychology or, for that matter, in educational psychology in 50 years, maybe more. The idea here is that the human mind essentially has two deliberative systems, thinking systems. One is that quick, intuitive gut thing that we do, right? We use that to, you know, recognize faces and render judgments on songs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then there's a much slower kind of critical thinking reflection kind of process where you don't take it out of your gut, but you ponder things for a while, and then you make a decision that is a little more thought through. Mm -hmm. These two systems vie for our attention as we try to regulate our behavior. And of course, each one of them used to excess causes problems, right? We all know people who've rushed into things and made a mess. That's system one overdone. But we also know that there exists, especially in such things as golf, paralysis by analysis, right, where you overthink something until you're a pretzel. Right. Right. Either one of these things done to excess is a problem, mm -hmm. and I'm not extolling the virtues of one and criticizing the other. But I am suggesting that psychology now informs us that we need to be asking ourselves as we go through life, how much do I need to think this through before I make a decision and motivate some behavior? This that, seems yes. to be kind of key for school leadership. I think so. Yep. Leaders are going to have to make a gazillion decisions in the day. And some of them are going to need to be quick and kind of slapdash, and you need to just go for it. No one's arguing against that. But there are some decisions mixed in there that your gut will get wrong. It will be too simple. It will be too offensive. It will be too bull in a china shop. Right. right? And what this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, contributes is to make us cast a light in a dark corner, and that is, what are the processes by which we make our judgments? Mm. Right, school leader needs to decide on this or that, and you want to think this through in some cases, and in other cases, you kind of don't. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, which in my judgment was like a 25-page paper, boofed out into being a full-length book, but it made the case for system one, that sometimes our intuitive judgments are kind of better, because they're less fraught with phony analysis. I thought the book over made the case, but it does show that there's times when that kind of reasoning is best. Mm -hmm. The world is full of opportunities to argue the opposite. Kahneman himself argues for using system two to make big decisions. The reflective judgment model of Kitchener and King, Deanna Kuhn's work, Jerome Bruner, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of effort to try to get us to be more thoughtful about things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time that is a success. So I would say to the school leaders out there, when you have a big decision to make, ask yourself, on what basis are we making it, right? Are we intuiting this, or have we thought this through? 
Okay. There's no it. easy answer to that, right. but if you put that question before you, a chance of making a big mistake drops a lot. Right. Thinking fast and slow. Someone else had recommended that book. That's Yeah, um, it's terrific. Okay. It's a compendium of giant numbers of research projects that these two, Tversky and Kahneman, did, and they got the Nobel Prize. Awesome. which shows how flawed people's intuitive judgments are. For example, German judges were asked to pronounce sentence on fictional cases. But before they were going to pronounce sentence, they were given dice to toss. Only the dice were fixed so that some of them got big numbers and some of them got little numbers. And the judges who received the big numbers pronounced longer sentences wow. in the later experiment, which should have nothing to do with it. Now, this sort of thing scares you a little bit, and the book is full of scary episodes like right. this, and I think we need to be scared in this manner because it's going to get us out of our reverie and we're going to start to ask ourselves, when we make decisions, what sort of contaminating things are we subject to, like the German judges? And not even be aware and of not even And no, we don't even know what's right. happening. And all the judges thought they were giving the appropriate sentence, but there was a fairly big difference between the people who got the sixes and the people who got the twos on the dice. Hmm. Wow, that's deep. It, well, I think that everybody <laughs> would benefit from asking themselves, am I right now being pistol-whipped by uh, intuitions and biases that I didn't even know I had? Hmm. Great. You know anybody who married the wrong person mm. or took the wrong job? Or know. their past, their, just their past. Yeah. Having experienced things sure. as a child, it really affects how you behave in your future, in your present, if you're not aware of it. Yeah, that is exactly right. Oh, at the same time, I would hate to have it sound like everything needs to be deliberative and thought through. That ship doesn't sail. Leaders need to make a gazillion decisions a day, sometimes on one second's notice. The idea is to pick your spots thoughtfully. But Bruce, you know, I get that. But the responsibility of a leader, it's so important that you have to take a step back and really think about yep. how you're going to lead and get a coach if you need or a mentor. Sure. That's right. extremely important. If you have an impulse to do something, I think this is the right thing to do, right? Then that could be a very good thing. It mm -hmm. could be a very bad thing. If you have a moment of reflection on that, you can probably tease apart which it is. Right. Right. So intuition itself is not the enemy. Um, the system one intuitive thinking that was rushed in without enough to back it. Now there's the problem. Yeah. And I bet every leader listening to this can think of a time when they made a decision quickly and learned to regret it. You don't have to go too far yeah. <laughs> right here. Don't have to go far. <laughs> now we've all done this. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the stakes are very high. Yeah. Usually they're not. But, you know, we all know people who married the wrong individual or took in on the wrong career or, or whatever, and that was decisions that were not made the right way. Yeah. Okay. Bruce, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? I, you know, I guess I probably don't have too much trouble in that area because so much flows into my inbox. Leaders usually have a lot of things being directed to them that require their attention. Mm -hmm. I make a list absolutely every day. I've got a clipboard here, and I carry that clipboard absolutely everywhere I go. So if I get accosted in the hall and asked to do this, that, or the other thing, I can break out the clipboard and write it down. I have no hope of remembering. And that helps me to stay organized. But uh, what there is is a lot of needs to do things bombarding me. I think any leader could say that. And for me, the key thing is you got to empty the inbox, hmm. right? It piles up on you until you're drowned, and that doesn't sail. 
I have a kind of reputation around here of being the kind of person that responds to your email in five minutes. It's because it's a lot easier to keep that inbox empty and to respond in five minutes. Actually, you're right. Then it is you to did plow when through. I sent, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you plow, if, you know, if there's 45 emails pi- piled yeah. up today and you haven't dealt with any of them, then tomorrow that's going to be 90, and in two days that's going to be a nightmare. And some people are getting two and 300 a day. Right. So this is tough, but there needs to be a uh, empty the inbox ethos or you're going to get eaten instead of eat. Okay. That's the way it looks to me. Okay, great. Now, many ed leaders put in long hours. They do. What advice would you give them about maintaining balance? This is a tough one because our parental responsibilities and our responsibilities to our aging parents Mm -hmm. and and a lot of other things are pressing, and there's still only so many hours in the day. I think that there do need to be some boundaries set up, though, especially if you want to have a major role in your children. Uh, their their upbringings. And I I know some school administrators that might burn the midnight oil actually a little bit too much. And they would probably argue that they have no choice. And I'm in no position to refute such argument. But if one is going to have balance, one's going to have to engineer it and make some policies. I have a kind of a a seven-day-a-week approach to finishing my dissertation work, you know, that that my students produce a lot of long papers I have to read. But there is the occasional time that I declare a weekend off limits, and I don't do jack over that weekend, no matter what's in the inbox. That's not clear the inbox time. That's take a walk in the woods with the wife time. Yes. So do you make time to play? I do. I do. I'm a songwriter, and I make records. Um, People can find them on Amazon and stuff. They're out there in the world. And I have to kind of squeeze that in. I must say, I love being a musician, but it's a lower priority than being a dad, a husband, a leader, a professor. Mm -hmm. There are times when I'm not able to get to it as much as I I guess I would prefer. Mm -hmm. But if, if there's going to be balance, it's going to have to be engineered because it will not naturally occur. Most school administrators' jobs will expand indefinitely. There's a a funny corollary of Murphy's Law called Johnson's Law of Work. Work expands to fill the time allotted for it. (laughs) Right, so if you have all day to do the yard work, then it'll take all day. But if you only have the morning, then it'll only take the morning. So I think there's something there for administrators who need to find time to be with their children or play Mm -hmm. their piano or take a walk in the woods with their spouse or whatever. So they need to be intentional about making sure that happens. I, I, I think it can't be left catch as catch can because otherwise things get squeezed. Everybody knows the parable about the bowling ball and the baseball and the sand that has to go in the terrarium, right? And if you don't put the big balls in first, there's no room for them, right? So we really kind of need to take that old parable and, and put it into action. Although, again, that's a, a, lot, a lot easier said than done. So, Bruce, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Mm. Considering who I am personally, I would probably say listen harder, synthesize more, connect more, produce, talk, etc. less. Mm. Right? The uh, earlier me, I learned too much by being self-directed and figuring stuff out and producing things, you know, learning by writing things and stuff. It would have been better to be somewhat more prepared, listen more, synthesize more, connect more deliberately, rather than just feel like I need to be producing something all the time. And celebrating in between, right? Because I feel the same way. I meet a goal, 
I go to my next goal, yeah. and I need to learn yeah. to stop and celebrate. So I'm learning that. No still. question about it. The old president here, he's passed on now. He used to have this great speech. I used to love to hear it about how we don't recognize the important moments in our lives while they're happening. I loved this guy's speech. And I uh, heard it 20 times. I, I, I go for one more, right? And great things happen, and we don't even notice. The other day, I found myself basically on bended knee trying to talk one of my doctoral students who had just finished his thesis into going to commencement. He didn't want to go to commencement, and I, I had to do something, right? Because I know that in 20 years, he's going to be wondering where the photographs of him being hooded by his advisor are. And so I, I try to talk him into it. We just don't understand at the moment things are happening, that this is the big deal. And if you slow down a little bit and go into system two and start thinking this over, it might dawn on you that 20 years from now, your children, your grandchildren might want to see the picture of the day you got your doctorate or something. Or listen to your podcast. Right. And whatever. (laughs) So, Um, Bruce, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed? It seems to me we've covered a lot of good stuff. I'm sure most of your guests are more traditionally leaders than I am, although come to think of it, Jackie Brooks is more of a research type like me. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's better to get all voices there. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe so. It, it, this podcast series would be less valuable and more narrow if it was mm-hmm. just all superintendents and business moments. I, that's so true. So, Bruce, I want to thank you so much for You're adding value, welcome. not just to me, but yeah. to our listeners. Happy to help. Thank you. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.